Okay, let's just uh, bow our hearts one more time as we uh, come together before God's word. Well, Father, as we do come now before your word, Lord, we want to come in humility. Lord, recognizing that that which we open now and read and study is the word of the living God. And the Father, this word is living and powerful, Lord, divides between that which is fleshly and that which is spiritual. And Lord, we pray that you do that in our lives. That, Father, you cut away the flesh. That, Lord, we be circumcised in our hearts. And, Lord, set apart for you. Father, we thank you for these series of studies we've been able to go through. And, Lord, the, the continual reminder, Lord, that we need to be obedient. And so, Father, this morning, as we now just turn again, Lord, to your word, to this book of Deuteronomy. Father, just teach us, we pray. Lord, just give us a greater love and understanding of your word and a greater love of you, we pray. We ask it all in the name of Jesus. Amen. In our journey through the Bible, then we've made it as far as the the book of Deuteronomy. We're going to spend two weeks going through this book because there's so much here for us to to glean and to learn. Uh, There's obviously so much in every book of the Bible. And um, in a sense, we kind of do ourselves a disservice going through at the pace we are. Um, but at the same time, it helps us to get a, an aerial picture, if you like. Um, you know, if you walk through the countryside, you see things you wouldn't see if you were driving. Um, but then if you get an aerial picture, you get a different perspective once again. And it's kind of what we're trying to achieve here by going through the Bible uh, in a year, to try and see uh, the continuity of Scripture, the way that everything fits together. So... The Torah, the first five books, um, written by Moses, uh, Jesus himself uh, attributes them to Moses, and throughout we see record of Moses being the one that writes them. Genesis is the book of beginnings. Everything begins in the book of Genesis. And we need to understand that it's not Hebrew poetry penned in Babylon, as one commentator once told me. This is the word of God. This is God meant what he said and says what he means. And we have a true record of our origins here. The birth of the nation is given to us in the book of Exodus, the nation of Israel. They go down as just 70 people, and then they come out of there as a whole nation, somewhere around 2 million. And then at the camp of Mount Sinai, uh, we have the book of Leviticus, the law given to the nation. And of course it's interesting that we're given in the book of Exodus, the Ten Commandments, um, the rules for the nation to keep. And yet in Leviticus, we're immediately given the sacrifices for what happens when you don't keep those laws, when you break the law. Um, Clearly God knew that we can't keep the law. And that's the whole purpose. The law is there to show us that we're unable to meet God's holy standard. And the book of Galatians tells us that the law is there to lead us to Christ to show us we need a saviour. As we looked last time, wonderful book, the book of Numbers. There's so many lessons in that for the church in so many ways. Um, It deals with the wilderness wanderings of the children of Israel, but applies so much to the church. And we looked at that portion in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10, where Paul directly relates so many of the events in the book of Numbers to the church as lessons that we should learn from. And then this morning we're going to see the book of Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy is is really going to be a review of the laws and things that have been given so far, but we get greater clarification. I just want to highlight again, and this is something that Chuck Misler often points out, but we have in our possession an integrated message system. These 66 books 
by somewhere around about 40 or so different authors, given over a, a roughly a 2,000 year time frame. And we can prove that it had its origin from outside our time domain. This is one of the ways that we know that this is God's word. Because there's no way man could have engineered and put this together. Because everything is interlinked. And we've been going through in our studies on Sundays and then looking again on Thursdays. How we have this incredible detail. uh, And so many things are hidden just below the surface. And as you start digging, are revealed. The book of Romans really highlights this. It tells us in chapter 15, verse 4, that whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we, through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. And that's exactly what it's there for. It's for our learning, that we may grow, that we may be thoroughly equipped, uh, have everything we need. So, well, the book of Deuteronomy, Moses, as I said, is the author, first of Israel's prophets, um, it's the most quoted, uh, Moses is the most quoted Old Testament person in the New Testament. Uh, this book is written uh, on the plains of Moab, so getting ready to cross over into the Promised Land somewhere in the region of about 1450 BC, so roughly 1500 years before Jesus comes. It seems that this whole book, as we have it, was written in just one day. 68 times uh, we find the reference to this day. Uh, and it seems that Moses is giving these instructions to the children of Israel. This is almost his, uh, seemingly his final delivery to the children of Israel before the Lord takes him home. And what we actually see here is, in a sense, three separate sermons that Moses gives to the children of Israel. And as we said, it's also the most old, uh, quoted Old Testament book by Jesus, which should, again, uh, get our attention. Really what we have here then is the bridge between the wilderness wanderings that we've seen in Numbers and then life in the promised land. All this journey has all been about bringing them to this point. The book records their history, but incredibly what we have here is their past, their present, and their future. And we're going to see uh, a little bit this morning, but next uh, time, next week when we, we come back and finish off the book, one of the most amazing prophecies in the whole of the Bible. And I think that that offers unchallenged proof that this really is God's word. And it's one of those portions of scripture that you can take anybody to and show them very clearly, very simply, that this couldn't have been the work of man. According to um, uh, Dake, uh, uh, Charles Dake, he says that uh, there's 230 verses of fulfilled prophecy and 37 verses of unfulfilled prophecy. So there's a lot of prophecy intertwined within this book itself. The theme really is remember the mistakes of the past. In other words, don't let the lessons be wasted. We'll see that come out as we go through. And we see Moses is going to emphasize two things. One is the blessing that comes from obedience. And then the second thing is the curse that comes from disobedience. And uh, 21 times, which if you're interested in Bible numerics is 3 times 7, obviously. Um, these sevens appear all through scripture. But 21 times we have observed to do. And so we see this, this kind of instruction of the way we should live. It's interesting that Gerard chose that scripture this morning from uh, John chapter 14. We're going to see that actually echoed. Let me just read that scripture again. Uh, kind of our memory verse for the week, if you like. Uh, he that has my commandments and keeps them is he that loves me. And he that loves me shall be loved of my father. And I will love him and will manifest myself to him. Again, this keeping of commandments. And so we see the same theme here through the book of Deuteronomy. Gerald and I don't consult over these things, but that is such an apt verse as we look at this book of Deuteronomy. 
Henrietta Mears, uh, in uh, the commentary, um, what the Bible is all about, uh, in the introduction to Deuteronomy, says this, Everything depends on obedience, life itself, possession of the promised land, victory over foes, prosperity and happiness. We find this book teaches the inflexibility of the law. Thou shalt and thou shalt not occur over and over again. A blessing if you will obey and a curse if you will not obey. Don McClure actually puts it like this. He said, most of us don't have trouble hearing from God. We struggle with obeying what he said. I quite like that. And then I was reading this week, uh, Alan Redpath made this comment. He said, I believe it is not more truth that we, uh, that we need to know primarily, but 100% obedience to what we already know. And I think that's very apt and fitting because what we're going to see here is Moses re-emphasizing that which Israel had already been told. It's not that we need to know more, it's that we need to obey that which we've already been told, that which has already been revealed to us. And again, so apt for us. So the way the book is kind of broken down, the first sermon really is this reviewing of the journeys uh, which we see from chapters 1 through 4. The second sermon uh, goes from chapters 5 through to 26. That's the longest portion. And it's really a restating of the Lord. Some interesting things come out through that. Um, the third sermon, which we'll tackle definitely next time, uh, The Future in the Land, uh, from chapters 27 through to 30, and just an amazing portion of scripture. And then the closing remarks, which is really Moses' final comments to the nation, uh, chapters 31 through to 34. So let's uh, dive straight in. So chapter 1 then of uh, Deuteronomy. And we read, These be the words which Moses spoke unto all Israel on this side of Jordan in the wilderness, in the plain over against the Red Sea. And we're given a bit more detail. So the Hebrew title is These Be the Words. The Hebrew titles seem to be taken from normally the first line of the book. Certainly for a lot of the Torah, that's the case. <laughs> the, uh, the Greek title uh, in uh, and also in Jerome's Vulgate, is this Deuteronomy as we have it, which simply means second law. So that's where we get the title from. Now, what we're going to see, and Moses is going to give us a very quick pricey of this as we look at it now, uh, is the children of Israel, they left Egypt. We know that they turned off this way, the, the, the way of the Philistines, so they wouldn't get uh, discouraged. The Lord leaves them down, and I believe they came down to this point here, uh, this outcropping, this uh, beach at Nueba. Uh, some suggest the crossing was somewhere down here. Uh, either way, they end up on this side of the Red Sea. Both these arms here are still part of the Red Sea, the Suez, and then the Gulf of Aqaba uh, coming up here. And then they come off here, cross here, ending up at Rephidim. That's where the rock is, where Moses strikes it and the water comes out. And then eventually to uh, Mount Sinai, or Jabal el Laws, as the mountain is known uh, today, in Saudi Arabia. From there, they have this journey. They leave after encamping there for two years. They come on up here to this place, Kadesh. And it's from Kadesh that they send the spies up into the promised land. They go up to Horma, uh, and then eventually they come back to Mount Hor. This is where they refuse to go into the land because they meet these giants. We'll look at that in the text in just a moment. And then they spend these 38 years doing this kind of circuitous route in the wilderness, just wandering around, eventually coming back to Kadesh, to this uh, same place that they would have been at 38 years before. So, the second verse gives us an incredible fact. It says, there are 11 days journey from Horeb, that's Sinai, by the way of Mount Seir unto Kadesh Barnea. Just 11 days. It takes them effectively 38 years to get to this point. And it's an incredible 
fact that they were so close all the time. And there's a lot of lessons that we can take for ourselves in our own walk with the Lord. Verse 3 says, It came to pass in the 40th year, in the 11th month, on the first day of the month, so now again, the 40th year, so there's two years encamped at Sinai, plus our 38 years, that Moses spoke unto the children of Israel, according to all that the Lord had given in commandment unto them. So Moses is now going to begin to give a review of that journey that we just looked at on the map there. And again, remembering the promise that had been given to their fathers. In verse 7 we pick up and read, Turn you and take your journey, and the verse carries on, to the land of the Canaanites, and unto Lebanon, unto the great river, the river Euphrates. Now, if you know anything of the geography of Israel today, you'll know that Israel does not extend to the river Euphrates. If Israel extends pretty much to the Jordan, and that's about it. And we hear a lot about the West Bank, as Chuck Misler often comments, when people talk about the West Bank, ask them which river they had in mind. Because God says that Israel's territory would go up to the Euphrates. He says, Behold, I have set the land before you. Go in and possess the land which the Lord swore unto your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give unto them and to their seed after them. So note again the extent of the land that God is promising and that God is giving it to them. And also this is an unconditional covenant. In Genesis 15 and there's other places we read when the Lord gives them this land, he talks about not just giving them a possession but an everlasting possession. Verse 19 of chapter 1 we read, And when we departed from Horeb, we went through uh, all that great and terrible wilderness which you saw by the way of the mountain of the Amorites as the Lord our God commanded us. And we came to Kadesh Barnea. So really what Moses does then is, this is the point they send in 12 spies. Uh, Joshua and Caleb are the, the two, the only two that act by faith. The other 10 discourage the people. Uh, you know how powerful discouragement is there's a great uh, verse um, that I read when I was very young it just stuck with me uh, Proverbs 2019 it says where there is no vision the people perish there's another translation which translates it where there is no prophecy people cast off restraint and I think that my, my paraphrase of this is where you've got nothing to aim at people get sloppy and, you know, the, I think this is the import of this verse, what it's trying to say to us. Where there is no vision, the people perish. You know, and they, they didn't see a way that they could go into the land. They had no vision for it. And the people perished. You know, that discouragement is just so, so powerful. It's interesting, actually, and Spurgeon is a, a classic case here. But how many ministers and people involved in ministry get very discouraged. Satan seems to love targeting people with discouragement. It's one of those great tools, as it were, that he uses. There's a lot of other tools maybe he could lay aside, but that one seems to be one that he loves very much. And so frequently, Christians get discouraged. And then we kind of just give up and whittle out. Well, these ten came back, and uh, they discouraged the nation. As a result, we read in uh, verse 28, the nation was saying, Whither shall we go up? Our brethren have discouraged our heart. So a lot of people were ready. They were looking forward to going up. They'd had this long journey, or this journey from Sinai. They're, they're two years and a bit, two years and a few months into the journey. They get to Kadesh. They're ready to go into the promised land. You know, at that point, they've probably already had enough of camping. If anybody's been camping, 
two weeks is normally plenty, isn't it? I mean, imagine two and a bit years of camping. I know that it would have been nicer weather, but they get so discouraged at this point. And they're saying that they've discouraged our hearts, saying, The people is greater and taller than we. The cities are great and walled up to heaven. And moreover, we have seen the sons of the Anakims there. Then I said unto you, Dread not, neither be afraid of them. The Lord your God, which goes before you, he shall fight for you according to all that he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. Now, notice that it's not an irrational decision on their part from a human perspective. There was a real reason to be afraid because the people in the land were greater. They were taller. These cities were really walled. But the difference was they had God on their side and God had promised them this land, this victory. There's a very simple lesson. If we walk by faith, there's victory. If we walk by sight, there's defeat. You know, if we do that which we think we know and understand, it will lead us into despair, despondency, defeat, and so on. If we walk by faith, one of the great summaries in Scripture from this is Proverbs chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. I'm sorry, I think it was, yeah, uh, verse 4, 5, and 6. But just, you know, don't rely on that which you think you know. Trust in the Lord. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. And so verse 46 of chapter 1 says, So you abode in Kadesh many days according unto the days that you abode there. You know, and the question for us is, how many days have we stayed in a Kadesh of our own due to a lack of faith? You know, maybe questioning about, well, not sure whether we should do this or, or make this decision. You know, maybe it's regarding your finances. Maybe it's regarding tithing. Maybe it's regarding a, a calling the Lord's placing upon your heart. Maybe it's regarding getting involved in certain ministry. Maybe it's in regard to sharing the gospel. And everything seems to kind of go stagnant in your spiritual life. And suddenly you come back to this place and finally you make that step. You know, many of us have our own Kadeshis in different situations. You know, again, it's that giving in to discouragement. As we go into chapter 2, we read, Then we turned and took our journey into the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea, as the Lord spoke unto me, and we compassed Mount Seir many days. And the Lord spoke unto me, saying, You have compassed this mountain long enough, turn you northward. Well, Moses skips 38 years there. And all the struggle and the problems and a lot of those things we looked at during uh, the review of Numbers to bring us to the conclusion of their journey. And that's where we're going to really pick it up from this point. That Moses was simply saying that you know, we spent that we compassed Mount Seir many days. That's that journey that took them the 38 years. And now they come to this point, the Lord says, enough. Now it's time. Now we're going to move in. And the Lord had waited for that period of time to allow all those that had discouraged their hearts to die out in the wilderness. None of those that, um, of the generation that left uh, Egypt, that were over 20, none of them entered the promised land. Because they were the ones that said, oh, we can't do this. No, no, no. And because they were looking with those eyes of the flesh, uh, looking by sight, not by faith. Verse 4 of chapter 2, And command thou the people, saying, You are to pass through the coast of your brethren, the children of Esau, which dwell in Seir. And they shall be afraid of you. Take you good heed unto yourselves, therefore. And notice what God says, Meddle not with them. For I will not give you of their land, no, not so much as a footbreath, because I have given Mount Seir unto Esau for a possession. The words in Scripture are very, very important. If you note what I said a moment ago, we're just going to look at something here. God had given this land to them as a possession. 
But if you're thinking already about that land that God had promised Israel, isn't the land that Esau inhabited part of that land that goes between the Mediterranean and the Euphrates that God had promised to the nation of Israel? The problem gets a little bit more complicated because in chapter 2 verse 9, the Lord says unto me, or to Moses, Distress not the Moabites, neither contend with them in battle, for I will not give of thee their land for a possession, because I have given uh, unto the children of Lot for a possession. And the same we find in verse 19, When thou comest nigh over against the children of Ammon, distress them not, neither meddle with them, for I will not give thee of the land of the children of Ammon any possession, because I have given it unto the children of Lot for a possession. Now, these three that are mentioned here, we've got Edom, Ammon, and Moab. Okay, the, the descendants thereof. So you've seen these are family. These are the Semitic nations coming down from the line of Shem, Noah's son. So we have Abraham, and obviously through Jacob we have the 12 tribes. Jacob's brother was Esau. That's where Edom comes from. Abraham's nephew was Lot, and his two children, Ammon and Moab. So these three nations, if we look on a map, the area they inhabit, we have Edom, Moab, and the Amorites, really occupying a large portion of this area. But... Once again, if we go back and look at the area that God has promised to Israel, well, don't we have a problem? Because those three nations sit right smack bang in this portion here. So how are we to understand these scriptures? Well, Genesis 17.8 says, When God was speaking to Abraham, I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan. And he says to Abraham, For an everlasting possession. Now, I just want to just draw your attention to how important the words are in Scripture. That every detail is there by God's design. And even in the translations we have, and certainly uh, it's very consistent in the King James. New King James is, is basically the same as well. Very, very important that we pay attention. See, to those three nations, God had promised them a possession. But to Israel, God had promised them an everlasting possession. If we look at Obadiah, Obadiah is a book, a prophet, who deals with the judgment on the nation of Edom, on Esau's descendants. And look what we're told. Just looking at three verses there, verse 10, verse 17, and 21. God says, For thy violence against thy brother Jacob, shame shall cover thee, and thou shalt be cut off forever. Verse 17 says, But upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness And notice what we're told, and the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. And finally, in verse 21, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. So it's very clear the time that we're talking about. There's really a kind of a principle here. And that's kind of, God is saying to Israel, as they move into this area now where these nations are, it's really, don't touch them, and we may say, until the time of the harvest. And then the Lord's going to take care of them. The same we find with Moab and Ammon in Zephaniah, chapter 2, verse 9. We read, Therefore, as I live, says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, surely Moab shall be as Sodom and the children of Ammon as Gomorrah, even the breeding of nettles and salt pits and a perpetual uh, desolation. The residue of my people shall spoil them and the remnant of my people shall possess them. So these three nations that Israel at this point are told to leave alone because God had promised them a possession, later, because of the way they treated God's people, well, God allows them to 
be destroyed and that their possession is taken by Israel. So that land that God has promised, Israel will have that land, but it will not be until the time of the millennium when Jesus is the king and Jesus will rule over the whole of the house of Israel. All of that land promised to Abraham will be theirs. So let me just ask a question. Why then give Edom, Moab and Ammon tenure in the land? Why allow them to stay if God ultimately was going to get rid of them anyway? Well, there's a very interesting um, thing that we see as we go through and study this. Because in chapter 2, verse 10, we read a very important portion of scripture. It says, the Emmins, which you've probably not heard of before, uh, dwelt there in times past, a people great and many and tall as the Anakims which also were accounted giants as the Anakims, but the Moabites called them Emims. The Horims also dwelt in Seir before time, but the children of Esau succeeded them when they had destroyed them from before them and dwelt in their stead as Israel did unto the land of his possession which the Lord gave unto them. Do you see here what Moab and Edom were doing? They were used by God to get rid of these giants that were inhabiting the land. And certainly a portion of the land. So God used them in a way that was going to help and benefit Israel. The same is true for Ammon. In verse 20 of chapter 2 we read, That also was accounted a land of giants. Giants dwelt there in old time. And the Ammonites called them Zamzumins. And people great and many and, and tall as the Anakims. But the Lord destroyed them before them. And they succeeded them and dwelt in their stead. As he did to the children of Esau, which dwelt in Seir, when he destroyed the Horims from before them, and they succeeded them and dwelt in their stead, even unto this day. So we see that God uses these nations to accomplish his purpose, and particularly in regard to getting rid of these giant tribes that are in this area of the land, in the land of Canaan. Now, I think there's a very interesting model that we see here. Because what did Edom, Moab, and Ammon all have in common? Well, they were all related, as it were, to God's true people. They all did good works and fought the enemies of Israel. But they also oppressed God's people. And that's something we see throughout the rest of the Old Testament. And this is why God ultimately will judge them. Yet Israel were not to uproot them. You see, they were to be left to grow, as it were, until the time of the harvest when the Lord would deal with them. Now, if that rings any bells, it should, because when we study Matthew 13, we have an uncanny parallel with that, with the church. You see, in these nations that grew alongside Israel, we also find there was a soul that wanted to serve the God of Israel. We'll get to that when we look at the book of Ruth. In Revelation 18, verse 4, there's a call for those that will put their trust in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to come out from among the apostate religious system that will exist and is actually building and gaining momentum even now. In Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 3, the remnant of Israel, after the return from Babylon, then separate themselves from this mixed multitude, as it were, in preparation for the coming Messiah. So we see a, a real parallel, because what I'm saying, to spell it out, in, in Matthew 13, we have the wheat and we have the tares. The wheat are those who are going to be gathered into God's barn. I think that's a beautiful picture of the rapture in itself. 
But we also have the tares that grow alongside the wheat. And actually, the apostate church does a lot of good things. They champion a lot of good causes. And they do some good things that, in, a, in many ways, benefit the true church. Just as Moab, Ammon, and the Edomites did something that would benefit Israel. Let's be left until the end times. Until the time of the harvest. And then God will deal with them. Judgment will come upon them because they also, the apostate church, has persecuted the true church. Those that stand for the truth of God's word. I think it's an incredible parallel. I'll let you dig into that further if you want to. But I just think it's a very, very interesting um, situation that we see. So, so similar in both cases. Now, we read uh, verse 23, the Avims which also dwelled in Hazarim, even unto Azar. And then the Kaphatoriums which came forth out of Kaphtor destroyed them and dwelt in their stead. Now, probably you've not come across the Kaphatoriums before. Who are they? Well, it's interesting. If we turn to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 47, verse 4, we're told, For the Lord will spoil the Philistines, the remnant of the country of Kaphtor. So we find that the Philistines, who, event, who many believe actually went, uh, came from North Africa originally over to probably Crete and then from Crete across to the mainland, or possibly Cyprus, either Crete, Cyprus, those islands, and then came across to the mainland, they also got rid of many of the giants in the land, but there was one that remained, or certainly a family that remained. But I don't believe that Goliath, the most famous Philistine, was actually a Philistine. The Philistines themselves weren't of the giant tribes. They were a continual problem for Israel, certainly. But I believe that Goliath was a remnant of the Canaanites that were in the land. And he obviously became known as a Philistine because he was there. He got adopted into the kind of Philistine kind of family, as it were. Goliath, we know, had four brothers. But we, were, we, were, we, we find that these uh, individuals were related back to Anak, the Anakims, the giants that were in the land. But the Kaphtoriums also, um, uh, we're told in verse 23 of Deuteronomy 2 there, the Kaphtoriums which came forth out of Kaphtor destroyed them and dwelt in their stead. So what it's saying is the Philistines moved into this area, they destroyed many of the giants. But I believe that Goliath was a, a remnant, a leftover of the giants and obviously became a champion for them. So again, I'll leave you to... Do a bit further study on that if you want to. Verse 26, And I sent messengers out of the wilderness of Kenemoth unto Sion, king of Heshbon, with words of peace, saying, Let me pass through thy land. And carries on in verse 30, But Sion, king of Heshbon, would not let us pass by him, for the Lord thy God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate that he might deliver him into thy hands. And Moses speaking to the nation now and just recounting what has happened. So this king, Sion, king of Heshbon, this is the second king now that Israel defeated. The first king was Amalek uh, in Exodus 13. Uh, Rephidim, Amalek came out to war against Israel. It's when Moses goes and stands on top of the hill and we have Aaron and Hurry, the side of him, lifting up his hands and so on. And Joshua goes out and fights the battle. So Amalek is the first king. Now we find that King uh, Sion uh, of Heshbon is the next uh, king that's defeated. As we go into chapter 3, we read, Then we turned and went up um, the way to Bashan. And Og, the king of Bashan, came out against us. Of course, Og means go backwards. <laughs> no, just, anyway. um, 
And he and all these people to battle against, uh, at uh, Edrei. Okay, so they, they had this another battle with another king uh, in the land at the time. This is now the third king that Israel defeats. Now, the reason I'm making a point of that is because we're going to find, when we get to the book of Joshua, and actually we'll see it uh, briefly uh, as we pass by it in a moment in chapter 7 of Deuteronomy as well, that there are actually ten kings that Israel defeats. Three of them fall, leaving seven. And if that rings a bell, it should do, because we find a very similar situation in the book of Revelation. I'm going to explore that more as we study the book of Joshua. But let's carry on. Verse 11 of chapter 3 of Deuteronomy, we read, For only Og of Bashan remained of the remnant of the giants. Behold, his bedstead was a bedstead of iron. Is it not in Rabbath of the children of Ammon? Nine cubits was the length thereof, and four cubits the breadth of it, after the cubit of a man. Now, nine cubits, to you and I, how big is that? How tall is that? Well, one cubit is reckoned to be somewhere between 18 inches to 21. Typically, it's the measurement from the elbow to the tip of your finger. So it depends, obviously, on the length of your arm. But um, typically, it's assumed to be somewhere between 18 and 21 inches. So this giant is somewhere, or this bedstead, somewhere between 13 to 18 foot tall. And it's probably more likely to be the latter. Okay, so this is two to three times the normal length of a bed. I don't think he just liked a big bed. This clearly was a, a large individual. We're told he was a remnant of the giants. Now, if you look at a normal man, scale-wise here, so it's a typical six-foot person, and then that would have been the height, typically, of Goliath. And, and when you think that David was just a youth, so possibly five foot or something at this point, Imagine what it was like for David going out up against Goliath. When you see it in that scale, it kind of brings it home, the faith he had. Well, when we look at Og, that is in the region that we're looking at. Can you see why the children of Israel were a little apprehensive about going into the land? Now this highlights another really important point that we need to just stress again. And that's that they really were giants in the land. This isn't mythology. This isn't folklore. This is the word of God. It's giving us these details. And we've already read a number of accounts there. And, but it's from this that we do find a lot of mythology. And if you like, historical confirmations. Where did all these ideas of these giant beings come from? The Greek mythology is replete with these stories of giants, these kind of god men and so on. Well, we need to go back to the book of Genesis. Again, the book of our foundations. We're told in chapter 6, referring to the times of the flood, there were giants in the earth in those days, the days of the flood. That's what the reason for the flood was, to destroy these beings. But then we're told, also after that, when the sons of God, angelic beings confirmed in the book of Job and elsewhere, came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men, which were of old men of renown. Some people really struggle with this. But nevertheless, this is what the word of God says. And historical confirmations, again, concur. The uh, Antiquities of the Jews by Josephus, in book 1, chapter 3, says this, Many angels of God accompanied with women and begat sons that proved unjust and despisers of all that was good on account of their own strength these men did what resembled the acts of those whom the Grecians called giants Josephus was a recognized historian he's not putting this forward as a, a, a bit of mythology he's putting this forward as a factual account he also 
It says in book 5, chapter 3, There was till then left the race of giants who had bodies so large and countenances so entirely different from other men that they were surprising to the sight and terrible to the hearing. The bones of these men are still shown to this day. There's no way he could say that if there weren't still bones available for people to go and see at that time. And actually, there's a number of of discoveries being made. And uh, we did a, a very interesting study going back some time and uh, going through looking at a lot of the evidences uh, for these things. But actually, Scripture really does make it very clear that the tribes of giants were inhabiting the land in Abraham's time and then also after that, up until even the time of David. And, of course, we have the situation with Goliath. You see, this was all part of Satan's threefold stratagem that we've talked about previously. Satan wanted to stop the seed of the woman coming in any way he could. From the moment we get to Genesis 3.15 and the seed of the woman is promised, the one who would be the Messiah, the Savior, the one who would crush the head of the serpent. Well, Satan does those three things. One of them was to establish a false religious system. We see that with the beginnings at Babel. And it's carried on all the way through. All organized religion has had kind of roots coming from that. And eventually it will come back together with this one world church that we read about in Revelation 17 and 18 that God will bring judgment upon. But another part of that threefold stratagem was to infiltrate the land of Israel with these giant tribes, these offspring of the fallen angels and women. We saw in Numbers reference to this. Numbers 13.33, we've seen already in Deuteronomy, Joshua, many references. In Second Samuel, again, in Chronicles and so on. We've already just talked about the bedstead of Og, uh, Goliath we're aware of. Um, and the, the details of Goliath, we, we know this isn't just some uh, um, bit of mythology because we're given details about the breastplate and his shield and his spear and all these kind of things. We also have reference of Benaiah, uh, one of David's uh, army, who slew an Egyptian giant who was eight and a half feet tall. So lots and lots of references through Scripture to these things. But in, interestingly, in the New Testament, we also have confirmations. In Jude, in Peter, First uh, Peter and Second Peter. Let me just, just take for a moment the book of Jude, because that's a very clear example. It says, and the angels, okay, so we know what we're talking about, which kept not their first estate. They left something that was originally their domain, their position. The angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation. That word habitation is interesting. In the Greek, it's okaterion. It means a dwelling place for the spirit, a body effectively. And it says, who left their own habitation. He's reserved in everlasting chains and a darkness unto the judgment of the great day. Somebody told me not too long ago that this is referencing all of the fallen angels, really. So who are the principalities and powers we struggle with if all of them have been banished in everlasting chains? Well, that doesn't make sense. This has to refer to a subset of the fallen angels. Because we know, according to Ephesians, that right now we're wrestling against principalities and powers. We know that there are angelic beings, fallen angelic beings, with whom we're wrestling. So this has to be a subset because this group have been reserved in everlasting chains. They've been confined, they've been imprisoned under darkness, under the judgment of the great day. But it gets even clearer as you carry on because it says even as, that that is the really key there, even as in the same way that Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner. So if even as isn't good enough for you, we're told in like manner, 
giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh. Well, that's what Sodom and Gomorrah were guilty of. And we're told that this is the same as these angels did. I set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. When we really understand then the reasons for the battles in the Old Testament, we have no problem reconciling the God of the Old Testament with the God of the New Testament. How many people have talked about the God of the Old Testament being this cruel, harsh, and vindictive kind of God? And the God of the New Testament is a loving God, embracing everybody. No, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The God that brought the flood upon the world was a God of mercy. The reason the flood came was to get rid of this giant menace, these offspring of the fallen angels and so on, that had infiltrated the world. We're even told that Noah was the only one, obviously his family are included in that, who was perfect in his generations, or genetically pure is what it's saying. And many translations, modern translations, completely mess that up and tell you that Noah was just a really good person. That's not what it's saying at all. It's saying that Noah was perfect in his generations. He was genetically pure all the way back to Adam. His line hadn't been tainted with this evil seed, as it were. That's the reason God sent the flood, to preserve humanity, so that a saviour could come. Satan wanted to annihilate the possibility, the, 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 the prospect that the seed could come. And that's why after the flood... He doesn't go for the whole world anymore because he knows exactly where to go because God has already chosen Abraham and told him that he will have this land of Canaan. And that's why for 400 years we find that the, uh, the, um, um, the Canaanites, uh, those in the land, uh, are allowed to grow until they get to the point that Israel now come back after this, this time they spent uh, sojourning in the land and then their time in Egypt as well and they come back and they're now ready to deal with this menace, this threat. Before they were just a small family. When they come back, they're now an army or a nation of two million with trained men of war ready to go and take on this problem. So again, the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament both reveal a God of love and mercy. And that's why the inhabitants of Canaan had to be destroyed. Some of the portions you read in Deuteronomy and elsewhere is God is telling them to wipe out these tribes. If you don't understand that, You'll get confused. You'll, get, you'll start asking questions about why God would allow that to happen. But when you understand the reason, you have no problem understanding why God commanded this to be done. It was a satanic threat to try and stop the possibility of Jesus being born. And again, most Christians are ignorant because they don't read their Bibles. It's so clear if you read through and you see time and time and time again how Satan's plan was always to try and destroy the possibility of the seed. So with that, let's move into chapter 4. We read, Now therefore, hearken, O Israel, unto the statutes and unto the judgments which I teach you, for to do them, that you may live and go in and possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers gives you. You may remember, back in Leviticus, we saw a pattern that I said at the time repeats through Scripture, and it's amplified for us in Psalm 37. Hearken to do that you may live, is effectively what we're told here. These three things. Well, Psalm 37, verses 3 to 6, we're told there that we should trust in the Lord. We're to delight ourselves in the Lord. We commit to commit our way to the Lord. 
as a result of that, if we do those three things, in Psalm 37 we have this great promise that the Lord will bring forth our righteousness as the noonday sun. In other words, just as sure as the sun rises, so God will bring forth our righteousness if we simply trust in him, delight ourselves in him, and commit our way to him. And it's the same that we see here in Deuteronomy. To trust in God means to listen to him. Moses says, listen to God. And he says, the things that he's teaching you, we're to do them. We're to delight ourselves in the things of God. Actually do them. It requires action. And then committing our way. The way we live our lives, that we may live. That pattern, as I said, we see repeated throughout scripture. In Deuteronomy 4 verse 2, we're told, You shall not add unto the word which I command you, neither shall you diminish aught from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I have commanded you. It's just very, very clear scripture. Israel are being taught to respect and reverence God's word. Or oh, if just we had a, a church in this land that respected God's word, as we should. And praise the Lord that we have the freedom here and the... the, the the spiritual eyesight here to see that God's word needs to be respected and reverenced. Moses cast their mind back to Sinai when, his, when the Lord uh, had spoken to them and given them his law and reminds them, of course, of their deliverance from Egypt as we go on and we see this. Verse 23 of chapter 4, Take heed unto yourselves, lest you forget the covenants of the Lord your God. And then in verse 26 we read, I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day, that you shall soon utterly perish from off the land, whereunto you go over Jordan to possess it. You shall not prolong your days upon it, but you shall be utterly destroyed. Again, Moses making it very clear that we're to obey God, we're to serve him. I got for my uh, birthday yesterday, from my wife a, a CD of Casting Crowns. Some of you are familiar with Casting Crowns? I think the uh, title of the, the CD or the, the album is called Thrive and the first song is this song, Thrive. And it's talking about how as Christians that's what we should do. We should thrive. It shouldn't be just a, you know, stumbling from one day to the next. Jesus tells us in, in John's Gospel that he came to give us an abundant life. You see, God doesn't want to tie us down with a set of rules and ordinances and everything else. God wants us to live as we've been created to live. The problem is when we try and go our own way. And God says that we should take heed of the covenant, the rules, the laws that God has given us. And then talks about the danger of not doing that. And then notice this incredible prophecy. The Lord shall scatter you among the nations and you shall be left few in number among the heathen where the Lord shall lead you. And there you shall serve gods, the work of men's hands, wood and stone which neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. What an incredible prophecy this is. Because it's saying that if Israel didn't obey God, if they didn't follow the commandments, they would be scattered among the nations. Question one, did they obey the laws and the commandments? No. What's happened to Israel? They've been scattered among the nations. Have they been left few in number among the heathen? Yes. Have they served other gods? Oh, undoubtedly yes. The work of men's hands. What an amazing prophecy. But look at this, verse 29. But if from thence 
from those places where you've been scattered and you've served these other gods, if from there thou shalt seek the Lord thy God, you shall find him. What a wonderful promise. And God is the same yesterday, today and forever. This is a promise to Israel, or but it applies to you and I as well. If we find ourselves foolishly going after false gods, and we get into a desperate situation, and if at that point we look to God, we shall find him. But God says to Israel, and if thou seek him with all thy heart and with all thy soul, that's the key. It's not just an intellectual decision. And it's not just a a mind thing, making an intellectual choice. This has got to be a heartfelt thing. And with all thy soul, everything that we are. And verse 30. When thou art in tribulation, and all these things are come upon thee. And notice this, even in the latter days. So God says, there's going to come a time when Israel will be in tribulation. First of all, this is written somewhere around about 1500 years before Jesus comes. And we're being told here that in the latter days, firstly, after being scattered, Israel would still be an identifiable ethnic group of people. That's incredible. I mean, how many Philistines do you meet today? How many Ammonites or Edomites? You know, we don't meet those people. They've been intermingled with other races, other nations. I shouldn't say other races. That's one of those evolutionary things that we get fed God is made of one race one blood all the people to dwell on the face of the earth we're told in the book of Acts so God is saying that there's going to become this this time of tribulation Israel will still exist in the end times and this time of tribulation will come upon them and when this comes upon them in the latter days if thou turn to the Lord thy God and shall be obedient to his voice And then we're given another wonderful truth. For the Lord thy God is a merciful God. Just a few little words there, but how powerful that is. You and I are able to meet today as we are here because of that simple fact. In Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 31, For the Lord thy God is a merciful God. We'll praise him. Because if he was looking at our ability or our obedience, none of us would be here. And he says to Israel, If... You turn to the Lord your God and shall be obedient unto his voice. He will not forsake thee, neither destroy thee, nor forget the covenant of thy fathers which he swore unto thee. What covenant is that? The covenant to give them the land. What an incredible prophecy. 1500 years before Jesus. Before even the Babylonian captivity. And it's being fulfilled to the very letter in the days that we live in. What an incredible, incredible portion of scripture. How can any Christian deny that promise? We have this stupid doctrine within the church of this replacement theology saying that God has finished with Israel. How can any Christian read that and come to that conclusion? Because it's clearly talking about a time when Israel will be scattered in the latter days that God would remember their promise and bring them back to the land. So how can any Christian say that God has finished with national Israel? It doesn't... One of those subjects gives him quite cross, but move on. Okay, so that brings us to the end then of that first sermon. And I guess at that point Moses just took a brief drink of water, sir, if I may. And the people probably had a a quick break and then Moses gets them ready for the next one. We're not going to go through all of this. We'll make a a start and then we'll conclude uh, next week, this second sermon. So... 
chapter 5. We read there, Moses called all Israel and said unto them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and judgments which I speak in your ears this day, that you may learn them and keep them and do them. A couple of really important points being made here. Firstly, statutes and judgments. You'll see this uh, term used a number of times in the Torah. Firstly, the statutes are the things regarding their religious worship. And the judgments really were the civil matters. So that's what Moses is saying. So all the things that the Lord has said regarding their religious worship, how they're to approach God, how their worship is to be conducted, and the judgment, the civil matters, all of this is going to be related to them and highlighted again now. Moses is going to go through these things. But then notice, they're to learn them. That's got to come first. We've got to learn the things that God says and then keep them. So we can't keep them if we haven't learned them. We've got to learn them. We've got to learn God's word. That's why this year we're going through God's word. That's why I hope each and every one of you is reading through God's word. On Tuesday we'll start the book of Deuteronomy. And we'll start reading through these things together. But we've got to learn these things. And then we keep them, which requires, of course, obedience. And then do them. And that requires action. And that requires that walk of faith. Not the walk of sight, the things that we see. But it's a walk of faith. Even when it doesn't feel right or seem natural to us. Because God's ways are above our ways. We're going to get a review of the the commandments now, uh, briefly. Let me just read this from the Westminster Confession. I love this. It says, regarding the first commandment, which of course is, I am the Lord thy God, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, you shall have none other gods before me. So that's the commandment we're talking of. The Westminster Confession, they concluded this. The duties required in the first commandment are the knowing and acknowledging of God to be the only true God and our God and to worship and glorify him accordingly by thinking, meditating. And by the way, meditating, this is not the emerging church kind of meditating. It means to think about, to dwell on. Remembering, highly esteeming, honoring, adoring, choosing, loving, desiring, fearing of him, believing him, trusting, hoping, delighting, rejoicing in him, being zealous for him, calling upon him, giving all praise and thanks, and yielding all obedience and submission to him with the whole man, being careful in all things to please him, and sorrowful when in anything he is offended, and walking humbly with him. What a wonderful statement. And if only we could live our lives like that. Even that last little bit, sorrowful when in anything he is offended. Well, of course, in the world we live... Those things happen all too frequently. But are we really offended by them? And are we really walking humbly with our amazing and awesome creator God? James D. Kennedy put it this way. He says, you cannot say no, Lord, and mean both words. One annuls the other. If you say no to him, then he's not your Lord. Chuck Misler said, God doesn't want to be number one on a list of ten. He wants to be number one on a list of one. The second commandment deals with the issue of misrepresentation. This idea of you should not make a graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or on earth beneath and so on. God is of course a, a jealous God. He doesn't like anything that would purport to represent him in any way. Because we can't, how can we, from our imagination or understanding. He's he's jealous of his name, his character, his attributes. Anything that touches these is idolatry. 
The golden calf wasn't so much a problem because it was an object in itself. It was the fact that they were saying that that object represented God. This is what a lot of the church is trying to do today, to try and bring God down to a level that we can understand, that we can represent him by whatever it is that we choose to to tag on. No, God says the real problem here, the second commandment, is dealing with anything that we create or make from our imagination and call it God. Because it's not big enough. Nothing that we can think of is big enough to represent truly our God. See, idolatry is making a God in your own image, from your own imagination, to suit your own desires. See, Israel's neighbours observed an effect such as the rain or sun or life itself and then they imagined a cause for it. They created a physical object to worship ascribing the power of the cause to their creation. And as I say, emerging church is doing exactly this today. In Psalm 115, verses 2 to 8 we read, Wherefore should the heathen say, Where is now their God? But our God is in the heavens. He has done whatsoever he is pleased. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they speak not. Eyes have they, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. Noses they have, but they smell not. They have hands, but they handle not. Feet have they, but they walk not. Neither speak they through their throat. That they, make, they that make them are like unto them. So is everyone that trusts in them. That's really the second commandment that we find reviewed here that Moses gives us. The third commandment has a twofold application. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that takes his name in vain. It's about vocabulary. Of course, we shouldn't use God's name flippantly. But it's also about ambassadorship, taking on his name. It's one of the most incredible realities that we're faced with and evidence i believe again of the truth of the bible of all the religions of all the leaders spiritual or otherwise of all the mythological characters you could think of it is only the god of the bible and his son whose name is continually and without the slightest contrition or remorse used with unparalleled disdain why is it when somebody bangs their thumb with a hammer or something goes wrong, why is it they don't talk about Buddha or Allah or Confucius? Why is it they always use the name of our Saviour, of our God? Of course, there is one exception to that, and that's devout Jews. They still reverence God's name. And even today, when they write even the name of God, they would do D, G, capital G, dash D. They won't write his name before because they have this respect and reverence. There's still glimmers there of the fact that they were these people that God had chosen to represent him to the world. In Timothy, Second Timothy chapter 2.19, we're told, Let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. You know, if we take his name... We're an ambassador. We are representing our king in a foreign realm, just as any ambassador is doing. We're naming the name of Christ. 
That's taking his name. We should never do it in vain. John fifteen sixteen says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. Yet we've been appointed by the King of Kings to bear fruit for him, for his glory. It is really by royal appointment. And we are his official representatives. We're told in 1 John 4.17, Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. What a statement. We are his representatives. If we are Christians, we have taken his name. But all we're warned against taking his name in vain. Wherever we are, wherever we go, we are representatives of the King of Kings. And our lives must reflect that. The fifth commandment, and we're not going to go through all of these in detail, but just we know it's about honouring our father and our mother. Some question whether it's one of the most neglected commandments of all. Why? Well, arguably it's one of the most violated But do we see that violation as an offence to God? You see, we're to reverence and respect those who have given us life. We're to bring honour to their name. We are to accept their experience and wisdom. And obedience to this command will impact your actions, your words, your conduct, and your thoughts. I'm very grateful for my mum and dad, for my upbringing. Um, they were wonderful godly parents who brought me up to know and to love the Lord. And mum always, as I was going to school or going anywhere, she always used to say to me, as I was going out of the door, don't let the name or the name of the forwarder down. And it just reverberated in my head. You know, at all the time, that was there. Whatever I was doing, I was to not let God's name or my family name down. You know, well, it's the same for us, wherever we are. You know, do we honour our parents? You see, there is a bigger issue here because it's, there's something else in this. Let me just take you through it again. We're to reverence and respect those who have given us life. Well, actually, we're to reverence and respect the one who's given us life. We're to bring honour to his name. We're to accept his experience and wisdom. And obedience to this command will impact our actions, words, conduct and thoughts. You see, the way we think of our parents will ultimately be the way we think of God. And I know many people in this world now have very poor parents. That doesn't negate the commandment. As we move into chapter 6, we just carry on. And we're given there the Shema. As uh, the, the Jews know it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. Jesus cites this one as the most important commandment. When he's challenged, what's the most important commandment in the law? This is what he gives. Why? Because it encapsulates all of the first part of the law. Let me show you in a second. Because it deals with that which is Godward, our relationship with God. The Ten Commandments that Moses is reviewing in these chapters here, we have the first portion, the first four commandments. You should have no other gods before me. You should not make idols. You should not take the Lord's name in vain. Remember the Sabbath. All of those are to do with our relationship with God. And summarized in this verse we're looking at here in Deuteronomy 6.5, to love the Lord your God. The second part of the law is summarized in the second commandment that Jesus says is the important one. Because he then says that we should love our neighbors as ourselves. And we saw that 
A couple of weeks back now, in Leviticus 19.18, honour our father and our mother. You shall not kill. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal, lie or covet. All of that is about how we deal with our fellow men. I love this uh, comment by Spurgeon. He says, If the giving of the law, while it was yet unbroken, was attended with such a display of awe-inspiring power, what will that day be when the Lord shall with flaming fire take vengeance on those who have willfully broken the law? Quite a sobering thought, I think you'll agree. Let's just have a look at... uh, a little bit more and then we'll draw to a close. In chapter 7 we read, When the Lord thy God shall bring thee into the land where they'll go to possess it, and has cast out many nations before thee, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. And what are we told there? Seven nations, greater and mightier than thou. And as I said earlier, it's interesting. Three kings have already fallen, and we have these seven. So there's ten, three fall, leaving seven. Interesting. And we'll talk about that, as I said, when we get to the book of Joshua. But verse 2 of chapter 7 says, And when the Lord thy God shall deliver them before thee, thou shalt smite them and utterly destroy them. Thou shalt make no covenant with them, nor show mercy unto them. Neither shalt thou make marriages with them. Thy daughter shall not um, give unto his son, nor his daughter shall thou take unto thy son. For they will turn away thy son from following me that they may serve other gods. So will the anger of the Lord be kindled against you and destroy thee suddenly. You know, for us as Christians, this is equally applicable. We're not to make any covenants with the world. We're to completely separate ourselves from the things of the world. We're not to love the world or the things in the world. Again, we're warned about being unequally yoked, aren't we? Just as they were told, don't make marriages with them. Because what's going to happen? You see, God doesn't give any command for the sake of it. Verse 4 tells us why God is saying this. It's because of his love and mercy and compassion again. For they will turn away thy son from following me. And that's the danger. The moment we try and make a covenant with the world, on any level, it will turn us away from God. But thus you shall deal with them. And this is what we must do with our flesh life. You shall destroy their altars and break down their images and cut down their groves and burn their graven images with fire. For thou art a holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God has chosen thee, and this applies equally to us. The Lord thy God has chosen thee to be a special people unto himself, above all people that are upon the face of the earth. And again, Peter makes it very clear that we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You know, these things apply to us, and we're not to be united with the world in any way. Again, we're a holy people. But notice what verse 7 tells us. The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any people. For you were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you, And because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers, has the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord thy God, he is God, the faithful God, which keeps covenant and mercy with them that love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. What a wonderful promise once again. 
But note this. And repays them that hate him to their face. To destroy them. He will not be slack to him that hateth him. He will repay him to his face. You know, we may think, well, I, I don't hate God at all. You know, I love God. I'm a Christian. But what happens when we violate one of God's commandments or one of God's rules? What happens when we do something that we know is displeasing to him? When we grieve, as Gerald was talking earlier, when we grieve the Holy Spirit? God says he repays them that hate him to their face, to destroy them. He will not be slack to them that hates him. You know, God is a holy God. We cannot play games with God. We need to be wholly given over to him. And the Lord thy God will put out those nations before thee. And notice this as well, because this is just what happens in our own lives. Put out those nations before thee little by little, little and little, that thou mayest not consume them at once, lest the beasts of the field increase upon thee. But the Lord thy God shall deliver them unto thee and, and shall destroy them with a mighty destruction until they be destroyed. There's a similar situation that Jesus refers to in the New Testament. When a house is swept clean, but then more demons come back and indwell. And there's a principle here that in our own lives, God doesn't deal with everything immediately. We need to gradually give our affections over to the Lord. And there are things, and sometimes you'll look at another Christian and you'll think, well, I wouldn't do that, I wouldn't say that, I wouldn't be like this. But there are other areas of their life that they really seem to be going on the right track. Well, even with us, and you know in your own lives, that God has dealt with us little by little. I guarantee you, if you look back on your Christian walk now, there are things that you now don't do that you did for many years as a Christian. But now you look at it and you think, that's not acceptable. I don't want that in my life anymore. Things that maybe you even wouldn't necessarily classify as sin. Paul says in the New Testament that all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. And as we grow in grace, we come to an understanding that sometimes those things that we thought once were okay, well, the Lord now shows us that little by little, God with Israel was putting the nations out of the land, little by little. And of course, as that journey goes on, they were growing in faith. God would grant them victory over one nation. But then they have to keep relying on his grace for the next day and for the next battle. And you see, as God dealt with Israel, so he's doing the same in our lives. As I said, that all speaks of the walk of faith in the life of a Christian. We're to be separate, holy, and obedient. I think that's a good place to leave it for this morning. We'll pick up next week when we come back in chapter 8. Let's bow our hearts. My Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these incredible truths. Father, we thank you that these lessons that you taught to Israel are equally applicable to us. And Lord, just as Israel were a holy nation, called to be separate from the surrounding nations, Lord, so is your church. Lord, we're to be holy, set apart for you, for your glory. Father, we thank you that we have the privilege of taking your name But Lord, by your grace, may we be good ambassadors as we represent the name of our King, the King of Kings, Jesus Christ, to this world around us. Lord, we just thank you for your word. We love your word. Just help us to keep growing in knowledge and grace that we may bring honor and glory to you. For we ask it in Yeshua's name, in the name of Jesus. Amen.